Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Let me first welcome those who are worshiping in our family life center to our conversation here this morning. It is good to be together. And I always like to remind us that while we are here on this main level, worshiping, that just beneath us on most Sundays, there is uh, another worship service going on, our children's worship, known as Thrive, where important messages delivered lovingly and appropriately by able volunteers happens week after week. Uh, let's, let's never forget to remember those folks. I want to invite you um, right off the bat to open your Bibles with me to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John and just hold your place there. Open your Bibles or access that scripture on your devices. And while you're doing that, let me say that our pastor, Sean, is away today with his family, taking a little bit of a, of a breather uh, before leading us headlong into the Advent and the Christmas season and all that that means and all of that that encompasses. We hope that he has a, a good time of rest and time with his family. He had an idea for the capstone, uh, the, the final installation of this series that he's been preaching, Semper Reformanda. And he asked me uh, to, um, to apply some thought and to wrap some words around this idea that he has had one storied church. And that's what I'm going to do today. Now, together we can question and call into question the wisdom of him asking me to do that. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that um, here we are. Here we all are. The ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. I'm not going to read this entire chapter, but um, I do want us to read together or hear together a good chunk of it. I know that it's a bit arduous in a setting like this to hear a long, long passage and to take it all in. But in the end, I decided to go ahead and read this rather lengthy passage today because it and what it may do in you is far more important than anything that I may have to say about it. So uh, let's, let's consider this text together, beginning in the first verse. As he went along, he being Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no work can be done. 
While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud, and with the saliva, he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Now just imagine that. Go get your mama and daddy. Until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. And a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This is the word of God. It is reliable and can be trusted. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, we ask that in these moments, that you be in our midst, yes, but that you be in us, that you reveal to us, that you make plain to us that which you want to make plain, that which you want us to know, in order that we can go and do that which you want us to do. And I offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Go make disciples. Those were the words of Jesus that he spoke to his followers. We read them in the closing sentences of Matthew's gospel. 
Go make disciples. Jesus said, essentially, my time here is done. Now it is up to you. Go make disciples. Go spread the good news of me. Well, let's just park right there just for a second. Have you ever stopped to imagine that conversation as it unfolded? Have you ever stopped to imagine perhaps the look on Jesus' face as he said to his followers, go, go and tell, go and make disciples? Have you ever wondered about the tone and the tenor of his voice when he spoke those words? Was, was he encouraging? Is that how it would have sounded? Or, or confident in the instruction he was giving to his followers? Or maybe was he doubtful? Maybe he was hopeful. Maybe he spoke knowingly. How do you think Jesus may have looked? And what do you think his voice may have sounded like when he spoke those words, go and make disciples? Imagine for a minute that you were there that day. Imagine that you were sitting there as Jesus spoke those words. Imagine that he was speaking them to you. Because I believe he is. He's speaking those words to you and to me this morning. Go make disciples. That started all of the action and the church has been attempting to discern and determine how best to do that all of these hundreds of years. The challenge, of course, as we have been discussing over these past weeks, is that the world, the, the context into which this message, this good news message must be told is ever-changing, it's ever-evolving. More than that, it seems that the pace of change, the pace of evolution continues to quicken. I mean, just think about it. Humankind spent a considerable amount of time in the agrarian age. We grew what we needed. We shared with others. We were farmers and hunters and gatherers and tradesmen. We were survivors. That was our way of being. And that way of being, of course, during that period of humankind would have influenced how the church during that time, how followers of Christ during that time would have spread the message, would have illustrated the good news, probably had something to do with being neighborly. That age gave way to the industrial age somewhere along the middle of the 18th century, where we began to produce, to manufacture, to mechanize, to progress. We, in turn, developed a factory kind of mentality, and that, too, influenced how we went about making disciples. And while there is plenty good about how the church was the church during the industrial age, there are some things that weren't so good as well. Chief among them was the idea that we could so systemize or so mechanize the gospel 
that all we really needed to do was flip the switch and activate an assembly line to stamp out shiny new Christians, one after the other, after the other, after the other. That process, that program has had mixed results at best. Well, very quickly, comparatively, the industrial age gave way to the information age, which is hard to believe, just really came into full bloom only about 25 years ago, where the church found itself as just one of the ever-increasing number of competing voices in the midst of a deluge of data and information. Well, we've already blown through the information age, according to most. We're in some kind of age where too much information now exists. And we've had to develop a particular skill on trying to determine what is reliable information and what isn't, an entire new way of taking in data. We are now in some kind of age where predominant is the search for meaning. What does, what does this mean? What does all of this mean? That's where we find ourselves right now. The church has gone from modernity, where everything is certain and categorized, to post-modernity, where ambiguity and doubt and mystery and unanswered questions are okay, <laughs> at least for some of us. And now to a post-Christian era where the church is not the community center, the center of life anymore. That's where we are now. The times, they are changing. In that torrent of change, however, there are a couple of things that have not changed. In that sea, in that deluge of change and evolution, there are a couple of things that have not changed. Jesus of Nazareth, whom I believe to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is still the good news. That has not changed. And that will not change. Another thing, however, that hasn't changed is this mandate from the lips of Jesus that said to his followers and says to us today, I believe, go. Go spread the good news of me. Go and make disciples. Now, Sean has pointed out that historically, every 500 years or so, that the church has and must reimagine just how to go about that, just how to execute our mission. He's called it a rummage sale out with the things that no longer apply or things that have emerged that are simply not productive, if not plain wrong, and in with or hang on to those things which do apply and those things which always have. Semper reformanda. And he has suggested some things which I believe are worth this morning taking the time to remember, to, to revisit, some things that must go and some things that must stay. And it's been challenging, hasn't it? This has been a challenging sermon series, but, but change, reimagination, is always challenging. 
He said some things that must go. First of all, the fear of losing control has to go, according to Sean, because in being willing to lose control and giving up control, faith becomes real. Faith is allowed to be authentic. He also said that this idea of tribalism has to go, this gathering of people, this coming together of people who are exactly the same or essentially the same to the exclusion of everyone else, producing a kind of them and us existence, Sean says, and I agree with him, got to go. He's also said that one of the things that has to go or has to be reimagined is the way that we measure success away from the very physical, tangible growth kind of metrics, buildings and budgets and et cetera, although not completely go away from those. Those are perfectly fine and adequate measures, but an emergence more toward measuring or assessing in terms of transformed hearts and minds. Are we more loving than we were? Are we more patient than we were? Are we better grace givers than we once were? Are we more forgiving than we once were? Those have to be the measures of success. Former ways of measuring success have to be reimagined or set aside. Those are some of the things that he said should go. He also said some things that have to stay. First and foremost, and, and an absolute non-negotiable thing that must stay is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The pursuit of one, the Lord, who makes everything possible and changes everything. The lordship of Christ has to stay, non-negotiable. Radical, unconditional love has to stay. It's always been a part of who we are, although at times we have struggled with its application but this radical, unconditional love has to stay. Soul freedom, according to Sean, also has to stay. The dignity of the soul, the freedom to be known by God and engage with God or not for ourselves without input or commentary from outside sources. Got to stay. Sean also pointed out the thing that has to stay is the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Well, no doubt, there are, there are more things that have to go and there are more things that have to stay, but that's a pretty good start. And the question becomes, how do we go about it? How do we move into the next 500 years, this next cycle of church history, Given, given where we are right now, there are many ways that will emerge, no doubt. Many ways will emerge, no doubt, that we can't see right now at the beginning of this next period of church history, this next period of being the church in this world. More will emerge, but this we know for sure. There will be a rise and a reemergence of personal story. More familiar language may be of personal testimony. Sean introduced this idea last 
week. We know that this is going to be true. We know that there's going to be this re-emergence of the power of personal testimony, of story, because it's already happening. It's already happening right here at 6910. We hear those stories, and they're changing, and they're powerful. The power of personal testimony, that thing which says, this is what I know to be true about the Christ because this is what has happened to me. This is what has come alive in me. That's powerful. It always has been. And it's what, in this age of meaning-seeking, will fuel the church and its mission. And it's that, this idea of story, of one-storied church that I'd like for us to consider for a little time this morning. More directly, the questions for the day are how do we think about and embrace our own stories? And how do we think about and embrace the stories of others? And I'm going to give you fair warning, just like every other part of this sermon series It's challenging, and it's tricky, but change and reimagination and a fervent pursuit of being the church of Jesus Christ is always, is always challenging. First and foremost, I'd like to propose that we simply must understand that no two stories are the same. Let that sink in. It seems like a Captain Obvious kind of statement, and it is. But let it sink in for a moment. No two stories are the same. More than that, we cannot attempt to require that they are. We can't attempt to require the packaging of these independent and different stories into some neatly packaged, categorized entity. We simply can't. We must understand that no two stories are the same, but at the same time, there is a common thread that binds all of our stories together, and it's important to think about that too. Now, I looked far and wide for a good graphic illustration or a good video to try to illustrate what I'm talking about. The best I could come up with is this. Here's the church. There's the steeple. Open the door. And there's the people. Now I know you want to do it with me, right? (laughs) Let's do it together. Let's say it together. Yeah? Here's the church. There's the steeple. Open the door. There's the people. Now hold it right there. Just hold it right there just for a second. Look at all of those digits. Look at the people in our illustrated church. No two of them are the same. You've got a left thumb and a right thumb. You've got a left index finger and a right index finger. You've got a left pinky and a right pinky. The fingerprint on every single one of those digits is different from the other ones around it and different from everyone else's. There are no 
two stories that are the same. And yet there they are, intermingled and intertwined and attached to each other. Common among them is a, is a compulsion. Common among all our stories, as different as they may be, is a compulsion, a need, a driving force, an understanding or a hope that in Christian community, one just might encounter the Christ. And in so doing, experience transformation never before experienced. Look to your right. Let's do that. Look to your right and to your left. Look all around. Look at, the, look at the people around you. You do not see clones of yourselves. Everyone is different. To be sure, some of us are a little more different than others. But we don't see clones of ourselves. Everyone around us is different. But each of us have arrived here. Each of the people around you have arrived at this place for the same reason that you have. That thing that is in you, that compels you, that drives you, that calls you, calls the person to your left and to your right and everywhere around you. The story is different, but the compulsion is the same. Hope and possibility and belongedness lives here. We have that in common. We are different from each other. Let me be clear about this. There is none greater nor one lesser than anybody else. Not lesser, not greater, just different, but bound together by that which we seek. If personal testimony, if story is to fuel the church on mission these next few years, then that understanding, that understanding must be ground zero. That must be our point of departure. We are as different as night and day, but we are in this together. Everybody matters. Everybody I'm not talking about just 6910 here under these series of roofs. I'm not talking about Alpharetta. I'm not talking about 30005 or 30024. I'm talking about everybody. If we could see out the windows, it's those folks that I'm talking about. Folks who have not yet even thought about walking in to this door. Everybody matters. Every story matters. I loved, loved, loved the symbolism of what we did when celebrating our 20th anniversary. Do you remember this? When we were outside and we were gathered together and we were praying together and then we were instructed to turn around and face out into the community, away from the church, as a way to remind ourselves that everybody matters. Every body. That's got to be ground zero. Now, processing and embracing our own stories is tricky. Processing and embracing our own stories is tricky, especially in a world where so many others want to tell you how your story must go, how, what your story must mean. 
and where it must go from here. Outside voices and opinions and declarations and influences make it hard to see ourselves and our own stories well. Especially, it seems, these days when everyone seems to feel so free to say whatever they want to whomever they want to say it. Outside voices and declarations make it difficult for us to hear our own stories well. For many years now, I have, I have domed these whiskers. I remember many, many years ago when I first grew this little whatever it is. It was a different color then. I remember those days. Rapid change. But I, I remember going to an event with a group of people who I was going to be seeing for the first time since I had grown it. And I began to notice immediately that it seemed to be open season on me and people expressing their opinion of my whiskers. I remember one woman in particular walking up and saying, yeah, see what you did there? I like it. I give it a six. <laughs> you could do this. You could shape it that way. But all in all, I like it. I liked you better without it. You look better without it, but I like it. And I just wanted to say, and maybe I did. I'm not going to admit it here. I just wanted to say, who asked you, lady? Is there a sign around my neck that says, hey, everyone, I've grown some whiskers. Will you please come and take a look and assess it for yourself and give me honest feedback on what I've decided to do? Outside voices and opinions and declarations and influences make it hard to see ourselves and our stories well. It is those same voices who then put us on the outside of the circle, who marginalize us. Let me just simply say, don't let them. Don't let them. Your story is what it is, and it is just fine the way it is. Your story is what it is, and it is just fine the way it is. More than that, it has been just fine every step of the way. Your story has been fine, your story is fine, and your story will be fine just the way it is. This is important. If we remember the man from the story, from the text that we read, he was blind, then he wasn't, then he was a believer, and then we don't know. Who knows after that? In the first part of the story, he was blind as he had been from birth. He was blind and he was a beggar. Okay, fine. It's a perfectly fine part of his story. Jesus himself said so. You remember the, the, the disciples said, why is he blind? Why is he being punished for his own sin or for the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. He's just blind. But even in his blindness, God can be glorified. He could not yet see. He was not yet a believer. But he had Jesus' attention. His story wasn't wrapped up with a beautiful ending and memorialized in Scripture at the moment he encountered Jesus for the first time. 
wasn't the story that we know today, but he had Jesus' attention. Please hear me say this. In the midst of your own story, you have Jesus' attention too. And it doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter where you are in the continuum of that story. It's fine. And you have Jesus' attention. You may be the proverbial blind man. Your life might be a mess. You might be in trouble. You may not be proud of the things you have done so far. You may be the recipient of some terrible luck. You may be down and out. You may not be the version of yourself you want to be no matter how hard you try. No matter how things are going in your life, okay, fine. You are not, you are not lesser because of it. You are not being punished. And do not let anyone put you on the margin because you have the attention of the Lord Almighty. Your story is just fine no matter what. Which brings me to the next thing. Your story is also not finished. Remember the story of the blind man? He was blind and then he wasn't, and then he was a believer, and then there was something after that which we don't know about. Your story is not finished. We can channel our tried and true Imagine X language here, which says that Jesus meets you exactly where you are, but loves you too much to let you stay there. Your story is fine, but it isn't finished. The last thing I'd like to propose regarding processing and embracing our own stories is this. Your story is what it is. Hang on with me here for just a minute. There's, there's no need to garnish it. There's no need to wrap it up in something else, something more. There's no need to hide it. There's no need to build a facade around it. Your story is what it is. There is no need to attempt to pretty it up in order to make it more popular. And there's no need to ugly it up in an attempt to make it more powerful. Your story is what it is. And it's powerful even if you can't see it. The man said, look, here's all I know. Once I was blind, and now I'm not. Once I was blind, I had an encounter with Jesus, and now I can see. That's all I know. And I can just hear him saying, you guys, you Pharisees, you folks, y'all go ahead and dissect that and pull it apart and, and, and challenge it and, and do whatever it is you want to do with it. You go ahead. Here's what I know. Once I was blind, now I'm not. 
Your story is what it is, and your story is important. It is your story and the, and the collective of our stories that will fuel the church on mission in the foreseeable future. Your story, your personal testimony. Here is what happened to me. Here is what happened in me is the cornerstone for making disciples in the foreseeable future. If that's true, we should say a quick word then, given the importance of emerging stories in the emerging church about how we hear the stories of others. I think it's as simple as this. Listen. Stop talking. Stop looking for a place to insert your own words or your own story. Stop looking for the place to reply. Stop reformulating. Stop hijacking someone else's story. Now, this sounds harsh. I know that it does, but it's what we so often do. It's natural. It's natural. It's human nature for us. We hear someone else's story, and we try to scaffold that on top we already know or on top of what we think we know in order to make sense of someone else's story. It is how our brains work. It is human nature. The problem is, if another person's story doesn't line up with our own, with that that we think we know already, there's a tendency to just reject the story outright. And if we reject the story, we reject the person. Just listen. That's what the Pharisees did. They were guilty of what I'm talking about in our text. You know that Jesus came along. He saw the blind man. He got some dirt. He spit in it. He made some mud. He put it on his eyes. He told him to go and wash. The man went and washed. And then he could see. And he did it on the Sabbath. Oh my. That's where things fell apart. The Pharisees said, this just doesn't jive with what we know to be true. This doesn't jive with what we think to be true, they said. We reject this whole thing. Because this doesn't jive with what we think we know to be true, because it doesn't line up, Jesus is a sinner. And you, Mr. Blind Man, you, Mr. Blind Man, you're suspect. We're, we're, we're just rejecting this entire story. This doesn't make sense. Let's get to the bottom of it. Go get your mother and father. As an aside, what an incredibly epic parenting fail here we read in this. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's my son, but I'm backing out of this. He's on his own out there. Where to have, the, where to have his back, mom and dad? What an epic parenting fail I think that is. The Pharisees called this whole thing into question because it didn't line up and stack up with what they believed to be true. The God of the universe is writing an elegant story in the lives of people all around us. Writing an elegant story in the lives of people all around us that is perfectly, perfectly suited for them and important to the church. Let's not hijack it, people. Let's not try to reformulate it to meet our own limited understanding. Let's listen. We, we might 
just learn something. So finally, I say that's hard to do. That's hard to do. And I admit it. The approach to story listening is important. We have to have a particular mindset in order to hear the stories of others well, to listen to the stories of others. And I would like to propose that we do that. We, we assume the posture of listening from a place of wonder and awe and curiosity and humility about what Christ is doing in the life of another person. No matter who they are or how messy their life or their story seems to you, rather than listening from a place of assessment and judgment, rather than listening from a posture of checking the veracity of the claim. That's so hard to do. And we may have to change some language to do it. I'm a big believer in this idea that language shapes behavior. There's language and then behavior follows. Do you remember when, bless his heart, used to be a perfectly wonderful thing to say to someone? Well, bless your heart. It was, it was kind and adoring, but it's kind of become something else. Sometimes it's pitiful. <laughs> bless his heart poor thing. Sometimes it's disdainful. Old Tom, he's a so-and-so and so-and-so. Bless his heart. We may have to change our language a little bit. I'm on record as saying that I think we need to reduce the usage of the words they and them and those and over there and realize that we are all in this thing together. Language shapes behavior. I'll give you a tougher example. We might need to drop the word and this context that we find ourselves in now. This place, this, this meaning-seeking place we find ourselves now, we may need to drop the word anyway. Oh, we say it, don't we? I hear your story, I hear your story, and I love you anyway. Just think about how that gets heard. We don't mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's true, it's right. It's not necessarily wrong, but think about how that gets heard. I love you anyway, even though you don't measure up even though this doesn't measure up, even though whatever, whatever, I love you anyway. How about just, I love you? Here's a tougher one. We, we have all said and we believe and it's true and, and, I, and I'm not rejecting it. We've all said, kind of come alongside this idea of we hate the sin but love the sinner. How about we just love the sinner? That's us, by the way. Why don't we just love the sinner and skip the hate part? We may have, we can reject the sin. I'm not saying that that's not a proper way to think about things, but our language shapes behavior. Maybe we listen to stories out of a place of wonder and curiosity and awe rather than assessment and judgment. I can't help but laugh at the Pharisees in our story. They were so busy assessing and judging the veracity of the blind man's story that they missed the fact that something amazing had happened. He was blind, and then he wasn't. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
And I want to suggest to you that that same kind of thing, that same kind of transformation is happening in the lives of people all around us. It is amazing. Hear the story. Hear those stories from a place of awe and wonder. Rather than assessing and judging whether that lines up with what we know to be true or what we think we know to be true. So here's the thing. This is happening in you. This is happening in each of us right now. There's a new thing that is being done. Chapters of our stories are being elegantly written by the author and the finisher. Trust your own story. Trust the one who's writing it. Hear the stories around us. Be amazed. And go tell. Go tell. Make disciples. Make disciples. Let's pray together. Father God, help us be a people. Help us be a people who have the courage and who have the understanding and the confidence to be okay with ourselves, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever is going on in our lives. Help us be a people that know that we have your attention and that our story is okay. Nothing to hide, nothing to be embarrassed of. Help us be a people that, that while we understand our own stories in that way, that we have the courage, we have the wherewithal and the foresight to hear the stories of others in just the same way. Write the story of our lives, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>